Hi, I'm the Willman, and this is my podcast, Off the Beaten Path. Enjoy it responsibly, and don't forget to leave a comment on Anchor.fm. Thanks, and now on to today's podcast. When I hear music, I fear no danger. I am invulnerable. I see no foe. I am related to the earliest times and to the latest. Henry David Thoreau What is music to you? For some, music is everything. It's in you. It's around you. It inspires you. It speaks to you. Music teaches you about life, the hard times, the good times, the sad times, and the happy times. Music is poetry. It's emotion. Music is poetry in motion. Music can calm the soul, energize the brain. In music, one can discover the meaning of life and dream about tomorrow. Music can help you remember. It can help you heal and light the way. For my friend Jim Liberato, music is all of that and so much more. I sat down with Jim some months ago to talk about his life and the gift of music in his life. We discussed a wide range of topics. What I learned from that conversation is sometimes the choices we make impact far more than just ourselves, but it's how we recognize and respond to the toxic things that happen in our lives that can make all the difference in the world. Our conversation began with Jim sharing about his formative years. Spent some time in L.A., uh, the greater L.A. area, Monterey Park, La Puente, West Covina. Uh, and then back in 76, we moved back to Hawaii, and uh, I did my high school years there. And then stayed until I enlisted in the Navy, got married, and went out for another five years with the Navy, and then returned and was there until uh, about 2000 when we came here. 
it was rough. You know, kids will be kids, boys will be boys. And Honolulu, everybody's got to, I guess, you know, prove themselves. And I was the biggest guy in school, so everybody wanted to prove themselves by uh, messing with me. <laughs> Step up to the big guy, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. They, I was the proving grounds for uh, their masculinity, I guess. But, uh, I mean, I, I had a great time in high school. It, it was rough, but, you know, I, I met my wife there, um, and my kids went to, the, went to that high school uh, later in life. And um, I have no regrets, man. No regrets whatsoever. How did you uh, cope with those times that when you say it was rough? I mean, how did you deal with all that when people want to? Because I'm a big dude, too. I know what it's kind of like. I uh, I went head first, man. I, I had to uh, not only prove myself, but also, um, you know, establish that I wasn't afraid. So, but I mean, that's any high school, any high school you go to, not just in Hawaii. I mean, you know how it is. Kids, kids will be kids. Boys will be boys. But, you know, I, I had it, I, I, I faced it head on and, and plowed right through it. And eventually, you know, they, they figured out that, uh, I wasn't a pushover and I was one of them and, and I earned their trust and respect and moved forward from there. What kind of hobbies did you have when you were younger? Um, I was a musician since I was about the age of eight. My grandfather bought me my first guitar. Is that what you say that's your biggest influence, your grandfather? Um, no, my biggest influence was the, uh, the music that was in my household uh, growing up. But my grandfather was the one that introduced me to my first instrument, which was the guitar. What kind of music was in your house growing up? Um, early seventies, late sixties, Simon and Garfunkel, Sills and Crofts, um, Tower of Power, Average White Band, uh, Bill Withers, Johnny Mathis, um, the whole gamut. I mean, the, uh, those that, uh, that had good records in those days, they were in our house. Um, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago. You know, in a very stereotypical way, you would think that, uh, is your family like traditional Hawaiian culturally? No, my family was, uh, all of us were born and raised in Hawaii. Uh, we're what you call third or fourth generation, um, Hawaiian Islanders. So my background racially is Puerto Rican, Puerto Portuguese. On my dad's side, we're Puerto Rican. My mom's Portuguese and, um, their families arrived in Honolulu in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it's the generation after generation from then is uh, how we grew up in Hawaii. Were you any exposed to any any of that kind of traditional, like uh, slack key comes to mind, uh, traditional Hawaiian sounds? All of that. We, we the music was in our home. Uh, it was on the radio. Um, it was, you know, played live. One of the big things in Hawaii is uh, live music, um, not only on the radio but on the television and concerts and and family gatherings. And okay, and you say you got your first instrument when you were eight years old. Had you like ever like been in like a kindergarten class where it was singing like? For me, I remember being in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, and one of my favorite parts of the day 
was first thing in the morning, we would sing patriotic American songs, Pledge of Allegiance, uh, Our Country Tis of Thee, America the Beautiful. Did you yeah. do anything like that? All of that. Um, as a matter of fact, in my elementary school years, I started out with, uh, this was in Monterey Park. I joined the um, Honors Choir. There was the whole district had um, a choir that from all the schools would gather and practice and, and sing certain material. And then at the end of the year, we would perform in a central location so that all the parents could come in and enjoy. Uh, there wasn't just a choir. It was also um, uh, a symphonic band. So trumpets, violins, flutes, clarinets, um, those those type of instruments. When your grandfather gave you that guitar when you were eight years old, um, what describe that experience? Were you excited about that? Oh yeah, um, I immediately took lessons, and the first lesson, the first teacher that I had taught taught me how to play songs like Stairway to Heaven and uh, Malaguena, um, which is a, a, a guitar uh, piece. Um, other songs that I requested that he would show me how to play. So that's how I got into uh, playing those kind of music, is uh, mo- uh, the modern-day music. And, I mean, this is something you still do to this day, play music. And so have you always had this love for playing music and... Always, ever since I got that first guitar. And then, of course, you know, I got into bands and, and uh, duets and, and trios and played Hawaiian music, played um, modern music like Crosby, Stills & Nash, Neil Young, um, and then um, got into playing rock and roll music with a full-piece band. And You know, as a teenager, it's uh, kind of a big thrill to have... Uh, sort of a following especially if you form you know a ragtag group of young people together did you have anything like that were you in a band in high school or uh it wouldn't be called a band it was just a duet me and a friend of mine uh we both played guitar and sang um i sang harmony he sang lead and uh we did uh we did some gigs in waikiki we had some regular uh, gig weekly gigs um, that um, that we put together uh, a, a show, and um, so while we were still in high school, so yeah, we we played professionally for many years as a, a duet, and also uh, every once in a while we'd have a bass player and we'd play as a trio. What's the method for you personally honing your skills? I mean, a lot of practice? Or? Practice, practice, practice. And when you say I, that, what do you mean? I used to sleep with my guitar. <laughs> I, would like. go, I would fall asleep with it in my hands, and um, I'd, I'd learn a song. I, I'd listen to a song. I'd want to learn that song. And, I mean, it's just practice. It's repetition, you know, playing the same, same thing over and over again until it sounds good, feels good, plays good. Do you find yourself uh, in the modern day going back to like maybe something you played then and just really like enjoying playing that piece of music? Yeah, I've got a couple songs that I've played since I was in high school and I keep playing them. Uh, it's just not only nostalgia, but uh, some of the favorite music that my favorite music. 
And is it something people are familiar with, or is it something you know that you grew up? Oh yeah, listening to? no, it, it's it's old Neil Young, it's old Crosby, Stills and Nash, um, it's old Loggins and Messina stuff, stuff that people hear over and over again on the radio. Uh, I I guess they would be called uh, uh, traditional traditional music, traditional uh, contemporary music. Contemporary, sure. Um, you know, I think one of the greatest joys for any guitar player is the discovery that most songs are based on just a few simple chords. Most of them. Some of them go outside those lines. But for the most part, most of your classic rock songs can be played literally using three chords. Three or four chords, yeah. right. What are some of your favorite chords? Um, the power chords, the E chord, the A chord, the D chord. Are those your go-tos? No, that's pretty much all everybody's go-to. I don't know. I like A minor C and F with a G in there somewhere. That's called mixing it up. Oh, is that what that's <laughs> called? All right. I guess I'm a mixer upper then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, you have this lifelong love and appreciation for music, um, and it's in the blood. Did your did you have other family members that sang, um, played instruments, or n- actually, I do. Uh, but we didn't. Uh, uh, in Hawaii, families are all over the place. There's like seven main islands. We were on Oahu, um, where my mom and dad were born and raised was on Maui. So I had family in Maui, musicians and. Uh, we never did really get together, so we were separated. Uh, my mom then left. My mom and dad left uh, Maui and went to Oahu and graduated high school there. So I do have musicians in my family, uh, but we never did play together. But you know, it, I know of them; they know of me. So. And now you're to the point where you uh, you write and play your own music, your own songs. I've yeah, I've done that. I I still do to some point. Uh, I guess compose would be the right word. Yeah, you know, it, you you write lyrics and then you you know find chords to go with that and arrange uh, arrange the music to to fit the, those those lyrics. In those times that you uh, composed lyrics. Um, what was the, kind of what was your process there? Is what is it? Did you always relate it to an experience you had? Or yeah, yeah, it it was uh, pretty much um, uh, the experiences that I I had growing up, losing girlfriends, finding girlfriends. Um, That's like every rock store, every rock yeah, stars, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I I once heard that uh, somebody once said that. Um, Everybody has a My Baby Left Me song. And, of course, I do, too. (laughs) (laughs) Since my baby left me. Okay, I won't sing, I promise, uh, anymore. (laughs) We we have a live audience, too. That's awesome. Did you know that? That's my wife. Yeah. (laughs) No Rolo the studio dog today or Caramello the new studio cat. Who my listeners, (laughs) my podcast listeners don't even know who that is yet. So they will find out. It's called the cat devil. Anyway, I want to go back um, into songwriting and and such. Uh, you write songs about tragedies too. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, my whole album that I put together a few years ago, 2012, uh, all came about from me getting uh, neck cancer. And uh, I, when you're faced with something like that, you you realize your own mortality. And because I'm a musician, musicians, all musicians want to put stuff on on uh, on tape or back then it was records now it's cds and we all want to make a cd so that it uh it stays behind when we go and when i got cancer i i i was faced with my own mortality realized that you know i'm not here forever and uh, i need to do this now because i i don't know how much longer i have uh luckily my my cancer was was beaten with uh chemotherapy and radiation i'm in remission it's been 10, 12 years now, but uh, that's why I put this CD together so that um, it would it would be my legacy. I would that would be my something that I left behind. When somebody says something like that, is it? I mean, do do people just say like congratulations, or is that? I don't know. It feels weird to say, "Oh, remission, congratulations." Sure. No. Okay. That's, I mean, yeah, um, people that beat cancer uh, need to be congratulated. Sure. How, why not? How was that moment? The moment that doctor, oncologist, whoever, um, those words came out of that individual's mouth. How was that moment? You know, my wife freaked out. Of course. Because the doctor said it was stage four. I didn't know what the stage four meant, but, um, I had, I had no sense of dread. I knew that I would, I would face this just like I faced everything else in life and, uh, survive it. Um, just like high school, I survived high school. I, I survived the Navy. I, I survived raising two kids. Uh, we survived, huh, honey? We survived raising two kids. So this is just, for me, there was no sense of dread. I, I didn't think that it was going to kill me. I didn't think that I was, the end was near. Although, you know, af- after thinking about it, I knew that, uh, I could have. So that's why, you know, I, I put this CD together. But no, I, there was no sense of dread. I knew that this would, uh, I would face this and, and, and beat this as well. In a weird way, are you almost grateful for that experience, that diagnosis? No, uh, because I know what it comes from. Uh, it comes from the way of life that, and my, my bad decisions that I made growing up. Um, you know, the, the, the drug use, the, uh, um, just a bad decision. I knew that this was because of my past life and how I used to live it. And okay, um, good. I'm glad, and I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, you you have a t- an album and it is titled "I'm Not High Anymore." And so that's obviously, I mean, that's a fairly strong working title for an album. Uh, I've listened to some of the songs on it, and there's definitely a theme there. Um, and your past includes, you know, some addictive substance abuse. And all addictive substances. <laughs> when did except, all that start? Except uh, intravenous needle use. How did that begin uh, for you? Um, well, in Hawaii, marijuana is like a family deal. Um, grandma sells it. Um, grandma sold it. <laughs> a lot of people. Would grandma think that's grows cool. it. Grandma sells it so that she can get some Christmas money. Uh, uncle brings it over. We all smoke it as a family. Um, I mean, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying that that's a fact of life. So, 
marijuana was my first drug. Uh, and then just from there, it just, you know, I experimented with everything else. What's the heaviest drug you've ever experimented with? Um, I don't know whether acid is considered heavy, but I got totally addicted to crystal methamphetamine. Back when crystal methamphetamine was the real deal. That's the one that made me realize that I needed to get help and uh, and stop what I was doing. Tell me about that. What kind of, I mean, were you, did it go in steps for you? Were you first like recreational fun user, then industrial user, what I would call an industrial working man uh, user? Uh, well. Um, and did it escalate from there? All I did was marijuana and cocaine and. Uh, I dabbled with uh, hallucinogenics as a teenager and is in my early 20s when I was going to college. So it's late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, er, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I never did get addicted to heroin, I mean, um, cocaine or uh, acid or anything like that. We just experimented with it. Marijuana had been out throughout my whole life uh, since I was like 13 years old. I went to the Navy, I got clean. Before I went to the Navy, I got clean. I was clean for five years, six years, came back to Hawaii, um, and then got into broadcasting. Uh, I'd been a broadcaster from uh, way back in the University of Hawaii. That's when I first learned how to, to uh, be on the radio, talk on the radio. So I had radio experience. And when I came back to Hawaii, I just kind of slid into a... a uh, master control operator position at a TV station who was right next door to a radio station, a po- very popular radio station. And uh, from there, I got into one of the, the top radio stations in Hawaii and um, met a couple guys and, and it was part of um, part of the scene, the Hawaiian scene when crystal meth started taking off and be- starting to become a problem. So I blame it on my radio career <laughs> that I would, I got into crystal methamphetamine. I mean, I could have been in any career, probably would have, uh, probably would have started, but that's how it started was, uh, a couple of friends of mine from the radio station. We, we got into it and, uh, with crystal meth, it's, uh, it's not like marijuana, man. You, you get into crystal meth and it's like a snowball that, uh, keeps rolling downhill until it hits something and, and breaks apart. So. After you began to use it, did you start feeling like, man, I just want to do a little more to keep the party going, or man, if I just had a little more, I'd feel that good again? Were you always trying to reach that? Well, when you become fully addicted to crystal meth, you, you know, your whole thought process is, where am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? So I don't have to run out. And what kind of thoughts do you leave behind when all of a sudden that becomes your priority? Uh, you become very selfish, very self-centered and everything else around you becomes secondary. And by everything else, you mean everything else, family, friends, family, wives, children, uh, moms and dads, aunties and uncles, um, you know, crystal meth, uh, uh, crystal meth, you, you use a pipe. I used a pipe and I saw a, 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 a piece by, um, Richard Pryor, who he was talking about his crack pipe. And everything he said on his crack pipe was the same as my crystal meth pipe. It talked to me. I slept with it. 
I showered with it. I had to shout. I had to. I had to hide it from everybody, and it became, you know, what you know. Uh, Richard Pryor actually had a routine about. Did it become more important than your guitar and your music? No, it was a part of it. It, it was a, a, a part of it that uh, almost destroyed it. We were talking about Matthews and how it grabs you, and I think we were talking about how it becomes a bigger priority than the things in your life that should be a bigger priority. Absolutely. Um, for many people, I mean, simple things, just neglecting their family at large when, I don't know, would you agree that when all you're worried about is your next bag of dope, everything else comes secondary? Yeah, um, I need to backtrack just a little bit. Sure. And uh, because most people will wonder, well, how did you get your money? And I wasn't always, I wasn't just a disc jockey. Uh, in fact, I was just a disc jockey part time. I had a, a business of my own that I ran with my dad. Uh, and eventually he gave it to me, but I was a, a handyman. I had a handyman service in Hawaii after uh, coming back from the Navy. And it was called Windward Fix It. So that was my source of income for that. And not only that, but taking care of my family, rent, food, clothing. And, but eventually what happens is that, you know, you, you need to get that fix and whatever it takes, you do. Um, during that time, my wife was, you know, she also was working and raising the kids and, and, uh, watching after me, but, um, can know, I, can I ask if she used to? No, she never did. Never did. That's why I was, uh, I was blessed to, uh, find a wife and a woman that, uh, that didn't do drugs. How do you think this? Because it was all for me. <laughs> How do you think your use of drugs and kind of not being there mentally sometimes, how do you think that impacted your wife and your kids? Oh, it, very negatively. Um, it's a it's a progression that you slowly notice. Um, uh, you hide it from them as long as you can until it's absolutely noticeable. And uh, then they, you know, they... They're in denial for most of it, but, um, you know, eventually things come up, they find it, they see it, they notice the change in your personality and, and, uh, your habits. So it's a progressive thing that, that, uh, it starts off innocent enough. And then finally it comes to the point to where, um, you either make a choice over your family or you make a choice over your, your drugs. Uh, before I forget to ask, how about how old were your kids during your peak elementary of, school okay. into, into high school? Um, I had a probably a ten year run of uh, crystal methamphetamine as my main my main drug. At some point, you must have. I mean, aside from the the what I'm going to call imaginary high points, you must have come to a low point at some point. Yeah, and I can tell you exactly when it was. It was uh, Thanksgiving Day, uh, pretty much 20 years ago. Um, this year I'll be 20 years clean. But um, we were all going to a, a family friend's house for Thanksgiving. And um, I had to 
excused myself from my kids and my family and told them I'll be right back. I was going to the store and my wife. It was a lie. It it was a lie. And they knew it was a lie. By that point, they knew that uh, I was a drug addict and exactly what I was going to do. So the, the turning point for me was that day I saw the look on their face, the disgust. And finally I, uh, I saw it in myself what I was doing. Uh, it took their, their facial expressions to hit me in the heart and realize that, uh, uh, I was probably going to lose everything if I didn't, uh, I didn't change things. I'd already lost my radio program, my radio career. Uh, I was losing my music career. Um, it was, it, it wasn't a priority anymore. Everything was, you know, uh, doing drugs. And do, you, do you attribute that loss of uh, job and, um, musicianship to drug use? I mean, oh, is yeah. it because of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to do, <laughs> I used, we used to get high in the, in the radio studio and, uh, <laughs> during our programs and, um. I laugh because at one point on a conversation between you and I just randomly at the, you know, uh, where we hang out, you had mentioned that we have a lot of things in common and that, do. The, the, I mean, spot on is pretty, I mean, I can, a lot of what you said is, yeah, yep, me too, <laughs> me too. Back to the subject at hand. So you reached the low point, you saw the look on your family's face and, and there was a look of disgust and, and it hit you in the heart. And I knew that it was time uh, to make a decision because I was going to lose everything that was near and dear to me like most of my friends did. So I knew that um, it was time. It it needed to be done uh, before I lost my, my wife and kids. I have found it difficult to explain to current addicts that exact concept like well how did you know it was time all addicts want to be non-addicts we all say to ourselves we got to quit we got to quit when when am i going to quit i need to quit but the hardest part about that is quitting so and taking it seriously and taking it seriously but uh you know drug addicts are very are very selfish and um it's always me first um everything else secondary but you get to a point to where um, you have to make a decision whether it's going to be uh, something you need to handle or something you need to let go and and either kill yourself or or uh, well that's you know there's a saying that uh, death uh, um, jails institutions and death and, and that's that's exactly where I was headed. How hard was that first initial step to? realize you needed to seek help and how did you go about doing that well what i did was run away uh my parents had left hawaii uh, about 10 years prior to this um and i i left my my wife and my kids and came to oregon Uh, that's where my mom and dad had, had moved and i separated myself from my drug my drug uh, abuse and my addiction and, um, and talked to my mom and dad. And, um, it took about two weeks. Uh, 
And in the meantime, I had a few conversations with my wife. I apologized. I said that I wanted to come home. And she said, there's only one way you're going to come home. Uh, you got to get help. And she wanted me to go to an inpatient pro uh, program. And, and I we didn't have the money for that. But, you know, like I said, I was in the military. And the, luckily, the military will help you with those things. Uh, I went into a program with the VA. Um, and they helped me. They helped me get clean. Do you think that had she not taken that position, do you think that would have changed anything? Well, like I said, I, I've, I've been blessed to with a woman that uh, that stuck with me. Uh, it, it, it was too easy for her, for most women to just say, screw it, I'm leaving. And uh, I was blessed with a woman that uh, didn't have that mindset. She knew that I was there. I was in there. It was just a matter of uh, uh, of me changing and and bringing myself back out of that. And some would say probably the most important part of that is educating yourself about exactly. the drug use. Exactly, and that's what the VA did was gave me the knowledge that I needed, not only to uh, recognize the problem, but to solve the problem. And that's that's the key to to drug addiction is once you admit there's a problem, then you need to pursue fixing the problem. And that's what drug addiction clinics and drug addiction programs do. They give you the tools to fight that addiction uh, and hopefully uh, make it a lasting um, deal for you and not just a, 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 a cycle of, of re-addiction and, and, and um, what's the term they call um, backsliding. So, Did faith or religion play a role at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I credit that to my wife because she was uh, a preschool, a, a Christian preschool teacher at the church that we were both married in. Uh, but um, with a church family and their backing and their support, I, you know, realized that um, it was worth it for me to fix this and approach this like I should and uh that's what I did. I used I I used them as as uh, support and uh encouragement. Accountability did you also I mean I I've heard many people say it's almost impossible for a drug addict to turn things around and begin the the steps the many steps of getting clean without being held by accountable. In other words, you can't really, this, is it. this isn't something you can like, oh, you know what, I'm going to quit doing drugs today and things are going to be hunky-dory. Well, there are some that can, most cannot. Um, most need the support of uh, people just like themselves. Uh, I, I got into a program with the VA. The VA uh, made it a requirement that I went to an NA program and did an NA uh, meeting a week. Um, but not only that, uh, through my church, I met a recovery, uh, group that I also joined and, um, got the help that, uh, we all need, which, which is first to acknowledge the fact that I was powerless and that, uh, I wasn't alone.
there were guys out there that have the same story and were trying to reach the same conclusion, which was, you know, being sober. And so all these, all these elements, if you will, are the, are your mechanisms of accountability then? These are the things like, like oh, That's hey. why you go to group groups uh, and you return to groups is so that you can be held accountable with each other. That's why you share. You know, that's why you, you listen to other stories and at, eventually you stand up and you say, this is my story. Um, not everybody does, but at least you're there listening, knowing that you're not alone and that uh, there are people out there that are willing to help programs that are out there willing to help did you ever backslide or have a moment of weakness i did i did backslide um with meth or just other with everything (laughs) (laughs) meth was the was the the catalyst that uh put me right back into my addiction i was clean for two years um through the the program and and through uh my uh na program and through the uh the church program and i mean I, i i i dove head first into it my recovery. And I, I went to meetings, um, religiously for, for two years. And then I got to the point where everybody gets to the point where I, you know, I think I can handle this again, you know? And then, uh, that uh, little demon pops up on, on your shoulder and says, well, you can, you can do a little bit. And, uh, no, you can't. So I, uh, I backslid, I, I got high and, uh, it took two years to get clean and about 20 seconds to get right back to my addiction. Uh, all it took was that one hit, and I was right back into the thick of things. But you made it back out of there. Oh, yeah. I made it did back Did you feel out. guilty? Um, yeah, of course I did. I felt uh, a, like a failure. But, um, you know, uh, you get back up and you, you, you move forward from there. You realize your mistake. Uh, and you get right back on that horse and get back to meetings. And I mean, everybody, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, well, I want to, I won't say everybody backslides, but you know, the addiction, addiction is a cunning enemy. And, um, you need to, you need to understand that and you need to, uh, and you need to move forward with that knowledge. Now you've had a, a great run of success with this as far as not using. Um, what are some of those things and tools in your toolbox that you use to be successful anymore? Well, the the number one thing is that um, whenever I go to a meeting now uh, and I go and share my story, I tell everyone that, um, you know, I'm a drug addict. I will always be a drug addict. But I can have, I finally convinced myself that I can never get high again. And that's the number one rule. You can never get high again. And, uh, my second, uh, mantra, if you will, is, you know, for change to happen, you must change. And, um, you know, I hate change. That change is not, is not, uh, a good thing for me when it comes to just daily life and, 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 uh, your priorities and, and, living day to day. I like routine. I really do. But when it came to drug addiction, that was the only thing that was going to remove that from my life. And I had to change. So, um, that was, you know, that was my, my, uh, my mantra for change to happen. You must change. But in drug addiction and recovery, 
Um, NA has a really good program. They have a 12-step program. And the 12-step program is set up so that you have to do one at a time. You can't skip from one to five to six to eight. You have to start with one and work your way to 12. That's the only way that it's going to, it's the only way for me that it, it sunk into me that uh, my recovery was ahead. And so you were able to put this chapter of your life behind you with, you know, people holding you accountable, attending meetings, um, and just getting very serious about not using drugs in your mentally. That's a mental thing and a hard thing, I suppose. Well, having a good wife and beautiful children and a beautiful family helps. And once you realize that uh, you could lose all of that and realize that, um, you know, what's your priorities here? And my priority uh, had always been my family, my wife, my kids, my family. Um, but, you know, you, you get to that point where you have to decide. And my decision was not to lose my family because I saw so many of my friends uh, not only go to jail, go to mental hospitals, or die from uh, suicide. Uh, but I made that decision that I've got to step back and and honor my wife and kids as you know, as a father and a and a, and a husband. Another former drug addict uh, friend of mine once told me that because he had spent a year being clean before I even decided to get clean. He said, look, every day that you don't use is just that puts one more day of distance between you and the thing that was driving you down until finally so many days pass where you haven't used. All of a sudden you look in the mirror and it's the desire. Everything is gone. Do you agree with that? Yes. At the beginning, it is one day at a time, one year at a time. Sometimes uh, one moment. One moment at a time. Um, but you do get to the point to where you don't need to go to meetings every day or every week or every month or every year. Uh, but when you relapse and you remind yourself that uh, you are just one hit away from being that drug addict that you're so afraid of and that, that you left behind, you, um, you realize that this, this is the life that I want to lead now. And uh, there are certain things you need to do, I need to do, to keep that. And um, it's only one hit away from from losing everything. How's life changed for you since that, since those days? Well, a lot of things have changed. My relationship with my wife, my kids, uh, my relationship with myself. Uh, I love myself more. I respect myself more. And I think my, my family respects me more for it. Uh, crystal methamphetamine is a big freaking gorilla on your back, man. It's not just a monkey. It's a gorilla. And, uh, most people, uh, uh, most people can, can beat it. A lot don't. A lot fail. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, but it had to be done. What would you say to, uh, someone who's struggling with drugs and alcohol today? Get help. Um, well, let me back up. First and foremost, you have to admit that you have a problem. Uh, that's step one. And, and, and then you need to uh, get help. Because if you think you can do it alone, uh, 
I would say 98% will not be able to do it alone. You need to, you need the knowledge to beat this thing. Knowledge is power when it comes to drug addiction. And, uh, I mean, you could read the, read the big book and you could read, uh, any program that people set forth for recovery, but you, you really need to join the people that are recovering with you so that you can have that knowledge and that, uh, that, um, that help that's out there. Your album is titled, I'm not high anymore. What is your most, uh, What's your most personal, heartfelt song on that album? It's the title track, I'm Not High Anymore. And what's that song about? It's about recovery. It, it's it, My whole album was dedicated to the recovery community, those that, uh, those that are uh, in addiction, those that treat addiction, and those that love those that are in addiction. So the album is, is uh, I mean, the, the title track, tells a story of, you know, I, I feel embarrassed. I, I, I need to do something about it and I need to maintain this sobriety. And, um, my, uh, the beginning of the song is the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. So uh, that's the premise of the song is the serenity prayer. And that's really important. You need that peace of mind. You need that uh, self-awareness to beat something like this. And so are you working on any new music or is that, that's it? Um, I mean, I know you're in a it's band. Always a, it's always a work in progress, wherever, uh, whenever it comes to musicians. It, it's always a work in progress. So life's always making stories. Yeah. Always. Uh, I, I haven't written anything new since the last album. I have many bits and pieces of songs, but I haven't concentrated on that. I've been concentrating on my career, my family, making sure that everybody's taken care of and, and, uh, and are doing well. Doing the album was, was a, a pressure point for me because, you know, I didn't know how much longer I had to live. So, uh, the, my priorities now are, you know, my career and my home, creating that home and keeping that home. So life is so much better now, is what you're saying. Absolutely much better. Um, I remember a friend of mine who was my drug dealer. He wasn't a drug addict, but he did deal drugs. And this was back in Hawaii. And um, I, I bought my meth from him all the time. But there was a point where I quit buying meth. And I saw him in the store one time. And he hadn't seen me for months. And, uh, so I said, Hey, how you doing? He, he said, nah, how you doing? I said, Oh man, I, I quit for a little while. And he said, feels better, doesn't it? <laughs> My drug dealer telling me it feels better, doesn't it? That's not the way to make a sale, but okay. Yeah. Take no. it. No, but I mean, I, I mean, that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. My, my drug dealer telling me it feels better, doesn't it? To be off the drugs. So would you call you, would you say you're a success? Uh, a work in progress. Okay. A work in progress. It, uh, I've been successful. I've had successful moments, but, uh, success is a state of mind. I mean, you, uh, you make success in whatever you do. Uh, I'm no longer feel like a failure or, uh, I know I can do it now. I, I know that 
the I have the power to to do what I need to do uh, and do it right. I've heard guitar players say that they're never satisfied because no matter how good they are. Yeah, I, w- I always wonder if the really great guitar players, the you know, the phenoms, the world, world-renowned guitar players, would say the same thing. I'm just, you know, I'm just not where I want to be as a player. Where are you as a guitar player? I'm satisfied. I have an album out. I have a band that I play with. Um, we don't play original music, but uh, we play other people's music. But um, I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. I've been, in, I wanted to be in a band. And uh, I wanted to be in a rock and roll band, so you know I'm I'm playing rock and roll. I'm I'm living the dream. That's in fact that's the name of my band, Living the Dream. If you were to offer some great wisdom, note of wisdom to anybody who might be listening to this podcast about I don't know living, defeating your demons. Uh, pursuing your goals, uh, doing the best you can to build um, greatness around you and your family, what would that word be? Um, I think it would be a saying that comes straight from the Bible. Um, Love thy neighbor as thyself, and thyself part is what needs you need to do and you need to handle first. Before you can love anyone else or anything else, you have to love yourself first. And for drug addicts, we don't love ourselves. It's a very long road for that, a long road of recovery. Uh, even if, even if you are sober, sometimes you have regrets and, and no, you need to love yourself first. And, uh, once that you can do that, then you can love others and love life. And so to kind of close this out, you know, the whole purpose of the season two of Off the Beaten Path is this phrase that keeps coming up in my mind, be the change you want to see in the world. Are you doing that? You know, I'm not really concerned about the world right now. I'm concerned about ourselves. Of course, I'm concerned of what's happening in the world and how that affects us. Uh, But the world is going to do what the world does. Whether or not I can impact that with with positive change, I'm sure I could, but that's not my priority. My my priority is is my own. Uh, Hawaiians have a word kuleana, which is my responsibility. Kuleana is actually a, a a frame of mind where it's your responsibility. Kuleana is uh, it's not just one thing; it's everything that's under your roof. So. My my ability to make change is not my priority. My ability to maintain what I have and what I've built is my priority. And like I said, I don't like change, man. I'd like I like to have things that are are consistent. So if I can maintain what I have and make sure that that's taken care of, then I'm happy. What about role model, if I say that word, role model? Like, you have grandchildren, right? Do you think you're a, a good role model for them? Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. I know that uh, uh, my my children are, are proud of me. Uh, my grandchildren are still very young. Uh, 
and impressionable. So at least they'll know that, uh, you know, that, that grandpa's there and I'm, I will always be there for them. Uh, my priorities are them and uh, not other things. So you said your children are proud of you. Um, there's a level of forgiveness in that statement. I hope so. I'm sure there is, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope so. They know and they remember, I'm sure, as my wife does. Uh, but they know by my example that uh, I mean what I say nowadays. And I'm sober and I mean that. There's a cliche question that I've always heard interviewers ask, you know, 60 Minutes or whatever I'm watching. They say, well, if you had the chance to do it all over again, would you? And if you did, what would you change about it? Of course, if I could change it, I would. But you can't. The past is the past. So you got to live with it. You got to deal with it. You got to learn from it. We all learn from our mistakes. Hopefully that's the that's the goal. Uh, but yeah, the past is the past. You can't change it. You can only, you can only work for the future One, and for right two, now. Three, and. I'm not high 
make amends Patch things up with my old friends Thank all those who prayed for me My wife, my kids, my family I kneel before my bed each night And thank the Lord He spared my life I'm not high anymore I don't get by anymore with my friends I'm not high anymore And I feel so much better than I going to do it for this episode of Off the Beaten Path. A very huge thank you to Jim Liberato for sharing his story. Music for the episode comes from the album I'm Not High Anymore by Jim Liberato. It's available on Amazon Music. If you struggle with addiction, remember, hope and change are hard-fought things, and one of the best moments in life is when you find the courage to let go of whatever is holding you back. Off the Beat Path is written, recorded, and produced at Nine Toes Studios and is a product of Willman Productions. Until next time, thanks for listening to my podcast. I'm the Willman, and I'm out of here. I don't buy into the expensive plan. I love my kids, I adore my wife. We both prefer the simple life. And we got this dog who kind of just lays there.